So good evening and welcome to this public lecture. Um, as most of you have probably spotted by now, I'm not Mick Cox. He is a bit shorter than me and he does not speak with a Norwegian accent. Um, I'm Arne West of Mick's uh, co-conspirator over in LSE Ideas. And unfortunately, Mick couldn't be here to chair this lecture today because he has broken his arm, uh, which will keep him out of action knowing Mick for a few days. Uh, we wish him a very speedy recovery. Now, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce again Professor Timothy Snyder, this year's um, Philippe Romand professor here at LSE, to do the final one of his four lectures for this series. Before I go into the subject for this evening, um, I want to announce next year's Philippe Romand chair, uh, who has been selected and who is Professor Matthew Connolly, Matt Connolly of Columbia University. And quite a number of the people here will know Matt's work. He's worked on pandemics, he's worked on the history of nuclear warfare, he's worked on the global history of population control, um, and he's worked on a number of issues in transnational, regional, international um, history. Um, at the LSE, he will be doing a set of lectures on the history of official secrecy. So he will be looking at freedom of information issues, uh, very pertinent, I think, in terms of much of the public debate today, uh, in a historical perspective, starting in uh, October this year. So Matt Connolly of Columbia University is next year's uh, Philippe Romain chair. In that connection, I also want again to thank, on behalf of LSE Ideas and all of, idea, all of, all of LSE, um, Emmanuel Romain, who is here tonight, for his generosity in funding this chair. Emmanuel, it's something that gives us great pride to be able to work with you on um, getting these fantastic scholars to LSE to lecture and to teach students. Um, and it's a cooperation that is really very significant to us, not just in terms of the financial support that you provide, but also in dealing with you as someone with a profound interest in international history on a broad scale. Now, today we are going to deal with one of the most problematic, one of the darkest chapters of European and world history. Tim has <coughs> called his final lecture here The Origins of the Final Solution, Eastern Europe and the Holocaust. And he's going to ask a number of questions about the Holocaust and about its prehistory. He's going to discuss how the Holocaust, the mass murder of European Jews, was possible in the setting and in the time where it did occur. He's going to discuss how the prehistory of Germany and, equally importantly, of Eastern Europe help us answer questions about these horrific crimes. I think for many historians with an interest in the 20th century, this is not just perhaps the most important historical problem, but it's also a very difficult one to approach because historians very often approach it piecemeal. They look at different aspects of the Holocaust as a process. What Tim is going to try to do today is to look at a very significant set of connections that may help us explain a bit more about how this horror was possible. And, of course, the opening of borders and archives has permitted a much fuller picture than what was the case before. And to me, first and foremost, it also makes it possible for us to know the victims 
of the Holocaust data and to know them in terms of their own backgrounds, their individual significance, um, not just as victims but as people. And I think rescuing that, restituting that, bringing that forward is one of the great topics of all of the lectures that Tim has provided us with this year and is to me what ought to drive further research on, on the Holocaust forward. So it is a great pleasure for me today to introduce again <coughs> Professor Tim Snyder, uh, this year's Philippe Romand Chair in History and International Affairs at Embassy Ideas, and his lecture, The Origins of the Final Solution, Eastern Europe and the Holocaust. Tim. Since this is my very last lecture, I'd like to take the opportunity and make sure that I do thank Arne and Mick and uh, the, the staff who's been so wonderful at LSE Ideas, Zoe, um, Tija, uh, Emilia. I also want to thank in particular my students. What I say this evening is in part a result of the discussion I've been so fortunate to have with the students in my seminar over the course of this year at the LSE. And of course also Emmanuel Romain for supporting the humanities. Always a noble thing to do. Let me begin with one person, as, as Arna has suggested. One of the survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto, a man called Mr. Feldschu, wrote of the experience of the ghetto that people lived inside the earth. Now, what he meant by some, that was something very concrete, of course. He meant that people lived in bunkers. He meant that people lived in tunnels. He meant that people were in hiding. He was describing a, a, a life in black, but I'd like, to, I'd like to understand it also in, in a slightly different way. I believe that Mr. Feldshu had a certain intuition about the stakes of what was happening, about the scale of what was happening, about the significance of what was happening, not just from a Jewish point of view or from a typical point of view, but from the point of view of everyone involved, and in, indeed from the point of view of those who were perpetrating this atrocity. I think that the only way to understand the Holocaust, or the only way to begin understanding the Holocaust, is to begin from this idea of the earth, to begin from the, the largest possible scale, to begin from the way that Hitler, in particular, thought about the earth. Unless we understand how Hitler saw the planet, unless we can get inside Hitler's ecological mind, we won't be able to see why he thought the Jews had to be removed from the planet, nor will we be able to see how he was able to achieve this with such horrible success. So how did Hitler see the earth? Hitler saw the earth in a very simple, very reductive way. He believed that the earth was a planet with finite space. Over this finite space, races were in competition, for territory, much like species were in competition for territory. The reason territory had to be mastered was to control supplies of food so that reproduction of the race or the species was possible. 
Now, one implication of this view of the earth is that it is closed. It is finite. Not just in the sense that there's only so much earth to go around. Not just in the sense that the surface of the planet is finite. But also that there's, in the sense that there's nothing beyond the earth. There's no life after death, for instance. Um, beyond that, there's, there's, there's no metaphysics really at all. Hitler uses religious language rather often, but when he does, he changes it, he transmutes it. So, for example, he says, if I were to, if I were to pronounce a divine commandment, it, will be, it would be, thou shalt preserve the species. So a religious form, a liturgical form, a biblical form, but a content which, in fact, removes all of the substance of, of, of the Bible, of theology, of, of ethics. It's important as well that Hitler thinks that this state of affairs cannot be changed. It cannot be changed by science. This is extremely important because if science could create more food, if science could alter the planet, if science could improve our lives in some significant way, then perhaps everything wouldn't be a struggle. So he goes to extreme lengths to deny that science can actually solve problems in a fundamental way. Instead, he presents science as a kind of portrait Science describes life the way that it is. It describes this competition among human beings, among races, but it can't really change it. So where do the Jews come in? How do the Jews fit into this portrait? Or rather, from Hitler's perspective, how do they not fit in? From Hitler's point of view, the Jews are not really a race. It's not that they're subhumans. It's not really that they're superhumans either. It's that they're parahuman. They're not exactly human beings. Um, they can do something literally supernatural, thinks Hitler. They can bring into this closed planet, this planet that is closed in every sense, physically and metaphysically, they can bring into it new things, things that do not belong. What are these things that do not belong? Ideas. In particular, ideas of reciprocity. In Hitler's view of the world, there's no room for ideas which would allow me to communicate with you or you to communicate with each other across racial lines. The only natural solidarity is racial solidarity. Insofar as you and I believe in a social contract or a business contract, insofar as we believe in communism or capitalism, insofar as we believe in the rule of law or even the state in a neutral sense, we are violating what Hitler takes to be the norm. All of these ideas, um, which that might seem contradictory at first glance, Hitler thought that Bolshevism and Christianity were essentially the same thing. He thought that Trotsky and St. Paul were essentially the same person. All of these ideas which might seem to contradict are for Hitler fundamentally the same thing. They're ideas of reciprocity across racial lines. They're Jewish inventions. They have no place in the planet as it should be. What follows from these ideas, from Hitler's point of view, is something extremely harmful. What follows from these ideas is that the racial struggle does not turn out the way that it should turn out. Because these ideas are capable of weakening races and creating solidarity where there should be none, the stronger don't always survive. And the survival of the strong is the only right thing, the only true thing, the only beautiful thing in the universe for Hitler. Therefore, traducing that is the greatest sin that can be committed. The example of such a, of such a traduction, the example of such a tragedy from Hitler's point of view, is, of course, the outcome of the First World War. There was the racial struggle which Germany should not have lost, but which it did. What follows from this reasoning is that Jews, and Hitler is very clear about this, Hitler, Jews should be removed from the service of the planet. 
In his early writings in the books that I'm citing, in Mein Kampf and the second book, he's not clear about how this should be done. But it's clear that he believes there should be some black hole, some place should be found where the Jews could be put, where they would no longer be able to influence world affairs. Now, that's the most fundamental level, the level of the earth. Hitler is aware, however, that the earth is populated not just by races, but by polities. He's aware that there isn't just a surface of the planet, but that there are also empires who structure the politics, the political economy of this planet. He's aware that food is not simply something that we literally scratch from the ground like animals, but that it's also a commodity. His critique, his way of seeing the planet, applies to the empires that exist. The most important empire, the most important state is, of course, Great Britain. Great Britain at the time defends what Hitler sees as a fallacious um, notion of liberalism. Liberalism is not the, the racial struggle that should exist. Liberalism simply allows the British, who are the only great power who can actually control food supplies, to delude everyone else about the need to control food supplies. The only way to challenge British power or to equal British power, the only way to break free of the possibility of another blockade, which for Hitler is the horror of the First World War, the only way to break free of this is to control enough territory that you can be autarkic. Autarkic meaning self-sufficient. Now, interestingly, the idea that Germany should expand territorially is not really a reactionary idea. It's not some kind of agrarian utopia. It's not really an idea of going back to the roots or not only. The reason for Hitler that Germany has to have more territory is precisely to preserve its industry. He's perfectly aware that he was living in a globalized world. He's perfectly aware that in the global division of labor, German industry is what's outstanding, was and is what's outstanding. Germany was, it was to preserve that specialization while adding territory. Germany could have been self-sufficient in food just by taking its workers out of the factories and putting them in gardens. That's not what Hitler wanted. He wanted, he wanted Germany to be a kind of modern power. Now, food therefore means not just literal survival, not just enough calories to live, but it also means not just security. It means more than that. For Hitler, food also means comfort. It means a notion of dignity. And this is very important. This also comes from the experience of the First World War, when Germans had to be online for food, when they couldn't eat what they want. Hitler is very explicit when he writes about food, that what he has in mind is not just survival, not even just security, but also something like the American standard of living. Hitler's second book in particular is full of a version of the American dream. Hitler believes, and he's not wrong, of course, by the way, that thanks to radio and the mass media in general, Germans judge their standard of living not just by who's next door to them, but by what they believe the Americans have. This is incredibly important because it means that standard of living is no longer absolute. It's not just as your belly full do you have stocks of food. It's relative, relative to other people. It also means that it's constantly fluid. Keeping up with the Americans means uh, not falling behind, but it also means moving ahead yourself at, 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 a, at a pace which is no slower. And this, by the way, is why science can never solve your food problems. Science can never solve your food problems because you have to have as much science and as much land as the Americans. You have to have both. If you have the science but not the land, you're going to fall behind. It's in this connection that the significance of the word Lebensraum clearly comes through. Lebensraum has a double significance. 
The familiar significance of Lebensraum is, is the word when applied at its planetary level. Lebensraum is the German word that means habitat. It was brought into German to cover the, the, the French word biotope. It means habitat, or what we would call ecological niche. Right? Lebensraum is the space that a given species needs to survive. However, Lebensraum, a word which Hitler learned while he was writing Mein Kampf and which, which, which he interpreted creatively, also has another meaning. Lebensraum means, do you have enough room in that, in that special place in your house where you sit and you're comfortable? Do you have enough room in your car? In general, is your lifestyle comfortable? Lebensraum also means that. And the, the, the politics of Hitler's idea of Lebensraum is that he manages to unite both of these ideas. Lebensraum is about the Americans conquering the West and gaining their Lebensraum, but it's also about Americans having comfortable houses. It's the same thing. What Hitler is doing is he is conflating the struggle for life itself with the struggle for lifestyle, a conflation which, by the way, should be familiar (laughs) because we feel it in our lives too, the struggle for life itself with the struggle for lifestyle. He's transforming an idea about the struggle, the survival of the fittest, into an idea of the survival of the fattest. He's bringing those two things together into one idea. Millions of people have to die, not so that Germans literally survive. Millions of people have to die so that Germans will not fall behind the Americans in their standard of living. Now, where can this land be found? How can such an empire be achieved? How can Lebensraum, in both of those senses of the word, be attained? Um, where, where could such a territory be? It has to be somewhere. It can't be North America, obviously. The Americans are already there. It can't be across the oceans. Germany doesn't have a navy to speak of. And the British, of course, dominate the sea routes. Uh, it can't be in Africa. The Germans have been forced out of Africa. There's, there's no way back. It can only be in Europe. Or more specifically, it can only be in Eurasia. And here, Hitler sees the particular opportunity in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is the opportunity for Germany to gain its Lebensraum, for Germany to solve the problem of food supply in all three senses, to have enough food, to have secure food, and to have a higher and ever-improving standard of living. Now, why is the Soviet Union such an opportunity? The Soviet Union is such an opportunity from Hitler's point of view because it's not really a state. The Soviet Union, from Hitler's point of view, is a conspiracy of Jews put over on foolish Slavs. It's a kind of uh, parasitical unity of, of, of Jews at the top and untermenschen below, subhumans below. As such, um, it seems powerful, but is also vulnerable. An attack on the Jews would be enough to bring it down. Now, what this means is that the contemplated attack on the Soviet Union always has two sides. In the simplest way, it's always against the Slavs and it's always against the Jews, since the Soviet Union is both. But to be more precise, it is always a colonial war because it's a war which is meant to dominate the Slavs. And it's a decolonial war because it's a war which is meant to destroy the Jews and to begin the process of destroying Jewish domination over the entire planet. So the move east as Hitler understands it, combines colonial and decolonial ideas. This is important in and of itself, but it's also important because of the way these two ideas interact in theory and, as we'll see, in practice. The colonial war against the Slavs might might fail, it might succeed. 
the decolonial war against the Jews might fail, it might succeed. If the war against the Slavs fails, one can always switch over to the war against the Jews. And that is, in effect, what's going to happen. Okay. Now, having described all of this in a way which I hope is more or less um, coherent and understandable, we now have to face up to the basic problem. This is a coherent but, of course, preposterous view of the world. How could this coherent but preposterous view of the world actually animate politics? How could it enter into structures of power such that the world itself was changed so profoundly? Part of this answer, of course, has to do with Germany. I can't tell the entire history here of, of Hitler's rise to power, and it's probably familiar. But what I want to do is, is try to recast a couple of points which I take to be very important. The first is that Hitler's rise to power, unlike traditional coup d'etat, unlike traditional revolutions, um, preserved what I think of as the demonopolization of violence. Okay, that sounded that had a lot of syllables and was a little bit pretentious, so let me try to spell it out. When you, a traditional way to come to power is to question legitimacy of the state. You show that the state does not monopolize violence. Right? There are plenty of examples of that in history right now. Um, you, you, and by showing that the state doesn't monopolize violence, you open a crack, you create doubts, um, and then you find your way in through those cracks that you've created. The way that Hitler rose to power involved using the SS and the SA to demonopolize violence. That was normal. That's all well and good. What was unusual about Hitler is that once he came to power in 1933, he kept those people around. Normally, you send them off to be ambassadors, or you put them in prison, or you turn them against each other, or whatever. Hitler kept the SS around, and he turned them from demonopolizers of violence into what I think of as entrepreneurs of violence. That is, a very special group which was of the state but not of the state, whose specific task was to destroy other state entities. And over the course of the 1930s, the policies that we're used to thinking of as mainly intra-German policies, as German domestic policy, I think were chiefly significant as preparations for what was going to come next. That is, they were chiefly important as creating potential for state destruction or examples for state destruction beyond Germany. So if we think of the camps, for example, what is a concentration camp? It's a lawless zone. Inside Germany, it's a very small lawless zone. Beyond Germany, lawless zones could be created on a huge scale. Uh, if we think of, 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 of the police, the police in Germany, like everywhere else, are meant to enforce the laws. But over the course of the 1930s, the police in various ways, ideologically and in personnel, are penetrated by the SS so that slowly their purpose changes to the destruction of other states. These are things which can only be carried out on a limited scale in Germany itself. But beyond Germany these ideas, this potential will have devastating effect. The same thing is true of even of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in Germany in the 1930s is chiefly a potential. Jews are dehumanized, and anti-Semitism globalizes them. A Jew is no longer an individual human being or a German citizen. A Jew is part of a global Jewish force, a conspiracy, a power. Jews are to be seen that way. But so long as Germany is not at war, these ideas have limited effect. Very few Jews are killed before 1938, and even the policies of expropriating them um, and forcing them to leave Germany have very limited effect. Until when? Until March of 1938. Until states begin to disappear from the map, 
um, the destruction of states, the removal of states, becomes the opportunity, an opportunity for experimentation, an opportunity for learning. From, from the 11th to the 12th to the 13th of March, 1938, Austria ceased to exist. The Anschluss took place. And the, the, the impact for Jews was extraordinary, but also sudden. I want to emphasize one, one particular aspect of this. You've probably seen or heard of or read about um, the, the, humiliating, the humiliating rituals through which Jews were put. That Jews, beginning the night of the 11th of March, literally at the moment that Austrian's leaders gave up, had to scrub the streets. You've probably seen this. This was humiliating, but it had a symbolic significance as well. They weren't just cleaning the streets. On the contrary. In fact, they weren't really cleaning the streets as such at all. They were removing electoral propaganda for a referendum on Austrian independence, which had been called for a few days later. What was the slogan of this propaganda? Österreich, Austria. They were literally removing the word Austria from the streets as other people gathered and looked on. In other words, the Jews were not just being personally humiliated as as Jews. They were being associated with a previous order as everyone else, the onlookers, disassociated themselves from the previous order. So the destruction of state not, just, not only makes things happen or allows things to happen by the removal of institutions, it's also a process in which some people are at the center and some people look on. Okay. Now, that process allowed the policies of expropriation and immigration to be carried forward. Beginning in March of 1938, in Austria, and then in Czechoslovakia, and then in Germany itself, Jews began to leave not on the scale of thousands or tens of thousands, but finally on the scale of hundreds of thousands. This culminated in Kristallnacht in November of 1938. But Kristallnacht, the national pogrom in Germany, which was very much like the pogroms in Austria in March of 1938, also showed a limit. You could only have so much violence inside Germany itself. It confirmed the basic lesson that the violence at the destruction had to be beyond Germany. This brings us to 1939 and to Poland. Now, Poland is a very interesting case. If we're beginning to believe, or if we're arguing, that what matters is the state, Poland is a very instructive contrast with Germany. Over the course of the 1930s, I would say until March of 1938, or maybe as late as November 1938, it would be difficult to say which state was more openly anti-Semitic, Poland or Germany. Each of them had vast and open anti-Semitic aspirations. Each of them spoke of the emigration of their Jewish populations. Um, And, by the way, they had, on on the surface at least, very good relations from 1934 until 1938. There was a difference, though. It might seem subtle, but I think it's profound. The Polish anti-Semitic aspiration for Jews, and this is a long story which I can't go into, involved supporting Jewish right-wing terrorists in the creation of a state of Israel. In other words, Polish thinking involved decolonization, state creation. It involved moving Jews out, but it also involved creating states. There was nothing in Poland internally that was a racial institution which was destroying the state or altering the state from within. Poland was a very conventional state. Insofar as it had an innovation, it was the idea of creating states for other people, like Jews or at other points, like Ukrainians. And this, by the way, was one of the basic misunderstandings in late 1938 and early 1939, when Polish-Jewish, Polish-German relations began to unravel. Over the course of the 1930s, Warsaw and Berlin were in general relatively close. The understanding in Berlin was that Poland would be, if not an ally, 
at least a benign neutral in this campaign against the Soviet Union. And since Poland lies between Germany and the Soviet Union, Poland's attitude is, of course, crucial. In late 1938, early 1939, it begins to be clear that this is not going to be the case. And one of the issues over which German-Polish relations break down is precisely the Jewish question. The Germans are telling Hitler directly, is telling Polish interlocutors, that when we fight a war against the Soviet Union, that will help us get rid of the Jews. The Poles don't understand this. They're puzzled by it. They're flummoxed by it. They see it as a contradiction. Because from their point of view, the way to get rid of the Jews, which is a policy uh, commitment, an open policy commitment, is to have cooperation among states, to find some empire somewhere who's willing to take the Jews or create a state that would take the Jews, the state of Israel. They cannot understand what what Hitler means when he says the destruction of, of the Soviet Union will somehow allow us to get rid of the Jews. Now, the breakdown in Polish-German relations is extremely important for, for the future of the Holocaust because it means that Hitler now begins to improvise. Over the course of the 1930s, there was no plan to destroy Poland. Remember, Germany thinks that Poland is going to be an ally or benign neutral. Beginning in March, April 1939, that planning starts and with a vengeance and with a kind of almost emotional aggression from Hitler's side. And the decision is taken not just to invade Poland, not just to take territory from Poland, but to destroy the Polish state, or as the German leadership likes to put it, to exterminate the Polish nation, by which they mean not the literal physical murder of every Pole, but the physical destruction of the top level of the Polish nation, of the educated people, so that Poland will continue, but Poles will continue, but only as a kind of working class or labor force for the Germans. So the invasion of September 1939 is not a conventional invasion followed by conventional occupation. It's an extremely ambitious campaign of state destruction. Obviously, it's important for Polish history that the Polish state is destroyed, that tens of thousands of educated elites are indeed shot. Uh, but it's also very important for Jewish history. What, the things that are destroyed that are important for Jewish history, and I'll return, I'll return why, are the civil code, which involves property rights. Um, the destruction of the civil code is, is directly related to the ghettoization of Jews. It's directly related to the, uh, the implication of their neighbors in this process, because since the Jews have no rights to property, everyone else can, can take them. Also, another fragment that's left over by the, by the destruction of the Polish state is what we think of as the Judenrat. Under Polish authority, Jewish communities had legal representatives um, called the Kehela or the Gemina. Those people were transformed into the Judenrat. This is one more fragmentation. It's one more institution that spins out from the destruction of the Polish state. And we'll see why it's important in a moment. The reason why I have to say in a moment is this. When Pol- even, even when Germany invades Poland, the Holocaust doesn't start. To be sure, thousands of Jews are killed. And, thousands, and tens of thousands are going to starve or die of disease in ghettos over the course of the next two years. But from September of 1939 until early 1942, there is no Holocaust in Poland as such. There's ghettoization, um, there's, there's horrible treatment, but there's no mass murder. There's a plan to deport the Jews somewhere, to find that black hole where they can be put, but it hasn't been found. So the Jews are, are remaining in the ghettos and, and they're working. There's no Holocaust, in other words, uh, for more than two years after the invasion of Poland. How does the Holocaust then happen? The Holocaust begins with the invasion of the Soviet Union. It begins with the invasion of the Soviet Union for a couple of reasons. The first is, the most obvious is, this is what it was always all about. The Soviet Union was supposed to be the Jewish state. 
the attack on the Soviet Union was, for the first time, also literally a large-scale murderous attack on Jews as such. Mm. Jews, especially male Jews of military age, were targeted, among with other groups, for immediate murder when the Wehrmacht and the Einsatzgruppen enter into Soviet territory. And it's in the Soviet Union, the supposedly Jewish state, which is supposed to be removed from the face of the earth in a war of destruction, it's in the Soviet Union that the entrepreneurs of the SS have the fullest terrain for experimentation and where they invent the techniques which are going to be crucial for the Holocaust because they show that the Holocaust can be done. You have to look at it this way. Hitler always wanted the Jews to be removed from the planet. Whether they were deported or whether they were murdered was a matter of perfect indifference to him. For me, that is morally worse than some kind of plan from the beginning to murder everyone. You can consider it for yourselves and decide for yourselves. But Hitler was indifferent what happened to them. They were to be removed from the planet. And whether they were murdered or not, it turned out that murdering was the easiest thing to do, in short. And murdering was the easiest thing to do in part because of these techniques. One of these techniques was industrial-scale shooting. This was developed in, um, in, above all by Friedrich Steckham, who was an important figure in the, at the top of the SS and police command. At places like Kamenets, Podilski, and Riga, he developed industrial techniques with shooting. I'm not talking about gassing yet. With shooting in which tens of thousands of people could be murdered in a single day. Um, Another important innovation was the recruitment of locals. And the pioneer here was someone called Stalecker, who was the head of an Einsatzgruppen which went north into the Baltics. Now, the recruitment of locals is very important. Uh, It's very important for the Holocaust for all kinds of reasons. But one of them is... Um, that without the cooperation, not of a majority of the population, not even of a large minority, but without the cooperation of tens of thousands of local people, it couldn't have been carried out. Now, how does, how does local collaboration begin? When Germany invades Poland in 1939, Germany's not alone. Germany has an ally. The destruction of Poland is a joint undertaking by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. The Germans enter on the 1st of September. The Soviets enter on the 17th of September. The Soviets enter eastern Poland. They also, later in the summer of 1940, enter the Baltics. This is very important because what it means is that when Germany invades the Soviet Union in 1941, what is it actually invading? It's invading territories that have already been invaded once. When Germans come to destroy the state in these territories, what are they doing? They're coming to destroy a state which has already been destroyed once by people who are better at state destruction than they are. When when the Germans encounter what had been eastern Poland, or when they encounter the Baltics, they're encountering places where elites have been killed and deported more efficiently than the Germans were able to do. And they're encountering these populations as this process is underway. So when the Germans enter Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, June, July um, 1941, the deportation trains to the Soviet Union are literally underway. German planes accidentally bomb a few of them. So there, there is a moment here where the two powers touch. And this moment is very important for this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism. Now, the Germans enter the Soviet Union with the Judeo-Bolshevik idea, that is, Jews are Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks are Jews, in the hope that if they destroy Jews and Jewish power, the state will collapse. That, as we all know, does not happen. However, Judeo-Bolshevism turns out to work well as politics in a way which the Germans themselves don't quite understand. If you say that the Jews were the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks were the Jews, what does that do? Well, most obviously, 
it stigmatizes, marginalizes, and targets the Jews. They bear the responsibility for everything terrible that the Soviets have done. Less obviously, and especially less obviously because historians of the non-Jewish nations don't like to draw attention to this, less obviously, it liberates the vast majority of collaborators from the stigma of collaboration. Because, of course, most collaborators with Soviet power were not Jewish, right? Of course. The vast majority were not Jewish. Those people, when the Germans come in and say the Jews were the collaborators, they, of course, say, yes, you're right, and let me show you where some Jews are. This is the politics of Judeo-Bolshevism. It's also the politics of double collaboration. Many, and most likely the majority of people who helped the Germans to kill Jews in the Baltics in 1941, had been wearing a Soviet uniform until June of 1941. There is a politics here which locals understood and un- understood and understand today, but which the Germans did not quite understand. There's a political relationship here which requires us to know that there was a prior occupation, but also requires us to know that the Germans always underestimated the people that they were dealing with. Okay, so... How were the Jews killed? I want to focus on just one early moment. In the pogroms in eastern Poland, um, in, 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 in June of 1941, the most notorious of which was at Jedwabne, but there were a couple of dozen of them, there was a pattern. In that pattern, one of the things the Jews had to do before they were killed was to tear down the linen statue and then either decapitate it or throw it in a river or bury it. They had to do that, and then they had to sing Soviet songs, and then they were shot or they were burned in a barn. Why was it so important for them to tear down the Lenin statue? Because symbolically, that meant that the Jews were responsible for the Soviet occupation. Just like in March of 1938, the Jews have to be responsible for Austria. In June of 1941, the Jews are symbolically, publicly, theatrically made responsible for the Soviet Union. This, of course, is part of killing the Jews, but it's also part of the alteration of the biography of the non-Jews. Soviet power, which in fact touched almost everybody, by its nature, is reduced to something which just one ethnic group uh, somehow imposed on everyone else. This changes the story of everyone's lives, and it's precisely that politics, I think, which gives it its power. So the Holocaust begins in the Soviet Union, These techniques of killing, the mass shooting, the recruitment of locals, and also importantly, just as importantly, probably more importantly, the recruitment of non-specialist Germans, the recruitment of the German police, these things allow the Holocaust to proceed. What do I mean by non-specialists? The Einsatzgruppen were obviously specialists. There were only about 3,000 of these people. They have to recruit locals, but they also have to recruit Germans. The Wehrmacht and the ordinary German police are implicated in the killing almost from the very beginning. At all of the large massacres, including all the ones you would have heard of, like Babi Yar, the German Ordnungspolizei, order police, play a crucial role. These are just the ordinary, normal, uniform policemen who had been dispatched, in the case of Babi Yar, they'd been dispatched from Bremen, you know, peaceful port town. They were dispatched from Bremen and immediately took part in the mass murder of 33,761 Jews. The Germans themselves did not know that recruitment of locals was possible. They also didn't know that recruitment of Germans, so to speak, was possible. They were preparing for it, but they didn't know that it was going to work as well as it did. These innovations and these discoveries, by the end of 1941, showed that what we think of as the Holocaust was possible. By the end of 1941, something like a million Jews had already been killed, almost all of them shot in the territories of the occupied Soviet Union, the Western Soviet Union. It's only then 
at the end of 1941, when the, in my view, when the policy is finally articulated. The policy that's articulated um, by Hitler in December of 1941 is the full elimination of the Jews. What's happening on the scale of the war is that Hitler is no longer winning the war. The Germans are clearly not winning the war. And what shifts is the colonial, um, the colonial aspiration to destroy Slavs loses pride of place to the decolonial aspiration of murdering the Jews. Now, what does that mean in practice? In practice, the war, of course, continues to go on. But in practice, what this means is that the policy of killing Jews, children, women, men, whole communities, moves westward from the Soviet Union into Poland. Into Poland, it's carried out in a rather different way. In Poland, what happens is that you have an assembly of fragments. You have an assembly of fragments. One important fragment are Soviet prisoners of war. The detritus, the victims of the destruction of the Red Army in the early days of the war... Three million people or so, three million or so uh, Soviet prisoners of war starved in prisoner of war camps. These are actually death camps. From these camps, Soviet prisoners of war are recruited, and they become the people who build and then guard the facilities at Treblinka, Belzec, Sobibor, where, where, where Polish Jews are going to be gassed. Another fragment is the ghetto itself and the Judenrat. These things were not created in order to kill Jews. These things were created in order to prepare Jewish populations for deportation. But they serve the purpose of deporting Jews, not to Madagascar, not to some faraway place, but precisely to these death facilities at Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec. Other fragments of the Polish state perform a similar role. The Polish local authorities um, are now working for the Germans and are now personally responsible for the absence of Jews in their county or their village. If you're the mayor, you're personally responsible, that is to say your life is hostage, to the ab- for, for making sure that there are no Jews on your territory. So what happens is that a completely or a rather different model of killing Jews is applied in Poland um, with, ra- with, with very much the same consequences. The, the mass murder which started in a zone of double state destruction, the mass murder which started in a zone where the Soviets destroyed the state and then the Germans destroyed the state, spreads into a zone where the Germans destroyed the state, into the rest of Poland. Interestingly, it doesn't spread with the same uniformity everywhere else. And here I want to try to confirm the, 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 the significance of the destruction of the state by beginning to look at the question in a slightly different way. Up to now, we've been trying to show how the Holocaust happened as a matter of chronology, as a matter of accumulating causes. But there's another question, a related question, and I think a confirming question, which is how did Jews survive in these conditions? Given that Germany dominated not just Eastern Europe, but also Western Europe in, by 1941, why were so many Jews killed in Eastern Europe, and why did so many survive in, in Western Europe? The basic answer, I think, is that the events of 1939 to 1941 in Eastern Europe could not be repeated, so to speak, in Western Europe. In Western Europe, the state could not be destroyed when it wasn't already destroyed. In Western Europe, the SS could not be brought in to run things when, it wasn't, when that didn't happen initially. The exception is the Netherlands, and, and that's the exception that proves the rule, because that's where a very large number of Jews do die. Where there is a state, even if it's a Nazi ally, even if it's under Nazi occupation, where there's a state, Jews tend to survive. Um, not all of them, but roughly half, usually a bit more than half, sometimes a lot more than half. And, and here, of course, there are individual cases. Italy is different from Hungary and, Bulgaria, and Romania is different from France. 
But there are basic patterns. Sovereignty means that governments don't want to hand over their Jewish policy to the Germans. Even anti-Semitic governments want to control their own policy towards Jews. Sovereignty means that you have a foreign policy. Foreign policy means that if you see that the tide of war is changing, you might shift your policies towards Jews, as many of these places do. France is the classical example, um, but, but Romania is the more important one. Romania, which had its own policy of killing Jews, shifts quite dramatically in 1942. So, And the final thing which sovereignty means, and this might seem the most paradoxical, is that sovereignty means bureaucracy. Now, a few of us have a good word for bureaucracy, and bureaucracy has a rather bad name in the history of the Holocaust. But insofar as Jews were citizens and had access to bureaucracy in one form or another, even a very limited form, they were much more likely to survive. Things took a while. It took a while for a regime even to strip Jews of citizenship. And if there was a bureaucracy, people, as in Bulgaria, could intervene on their behalf. The only way to get rid of bureaucracy and to get rid of citizenship and to get rid of sovereignty and to get rid of foreign policy was to destroy the state utterly. This is what the Germans learned in practice, but they didn't know it ahead of time. And for this reason, the outcomes in Eastern Europe were so dramatically different than the outcomes in other places. We can see this, too, at another level by looking at the rescuers, the effective rescuers, first of all, the people who were able to rescue very large numbers of people. Who was able to rescue large numbers of people? Diplomats. Diplomats. Why were diplomats able to rescue large numbers of people? Because a diplomat is someone who is able to give you access to the state. Diplomats, not most of them, not many of them, but several of them, acted in moments, in twilight moments, when the state was being destroyed, in such a way as to give Jews access to, to, to state reciprocity at least long enough for them to escape. Some of these cases are better known, like the case of, of, of Raoul Wallenberg, who, as Hungary was being occupied by the Germans, saved thousands and thousands of Jews by giving them travel papers. Some of them are less known, like the case of the Chinese consul in Vienna, um, who, 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 who saved a couple thousand Jews by giving them papers in 1938. Some are somewhere in the middle, like the case of Sugihara, who saved several thousand Jews, again by giving them travel documents, rather dubious travel documents, but allowed them to get out, gave them access to, 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 to state recognition, and therefore allowed them to survive. And interestingly, the people who are able to save Jews in large numbers who aren't diplomats are people who are, as it were, pretending to be diplomats. That is, they are people in partisan armies, underground armies, who have paper mills that churn out fake passports, fake documentation. Right? And that has the exact same logic. It gives Jews a chance of surviving. The only organization that saved Jews in significant numbers was a state organization. It was called Zygota. Um, it was part of the Polish state. It sustained several thousand Jews in Warsaw. It was an interesting project because it involved money, very often raised from Jews by the joint, in the money belts of Polish paratroopers dropped over Warsaw. So it was a quango. It was, um, it was a state cooperating with a non-governmental organization, interestingly enough. But the state was there. Churches. Which churches rescued Jews? This is very uneven, but there's a logic to it. The general logic is not that Catholics rescued or Protestants didn't or vice versa. Not that Eastern Christians rescued and Western Christians did not or vice versa. The general logic is that if a church was close to the state, 
if it was an official church, a majority church, a politically strong church, in general, it did not help the Jews. If a church was marginal, if it was disenfranchised, weak, if it was in some way in opposition or underground, its members tended to help Jews. In other words, institutions which were strongly affected by the destruction of the state do not help because they're strongly affected by the destruction of the state. Institutions who are, as it were, already living in a different reality are more likely to help Jews. The big examples of this are Andrzej Szeptycki of the Greek Catholic Church in what was southeastern Poland, who saved at least 100 Jews, um, including the chief rabbi, the future chief rabbi of the Israeli Armed Forces, including a future foreign minister of Poland. Another prominent example of this are um, minor sects of Protestants in the Soviet Union who, who, who were themselves already underground and who tended to help Jews. <clears throat> uh, relatedly, partisans. Partisan armies are like states and they're not like states. They're like states in that they, have, they try to monopolize force and they can save you. They're unlike states, I'm, I'm reducing this, but not too much. They're unlike states in that they're not governed by law. In fact, they're generally breaking the laws of war. And they can kill you. And so, so there is a huge ideological debate between people who like the, the, the Soviet partisans and people who like the Polish Home Army. Some people claim that the Polish Home Army only killed Jews and didn't take them in, which isn't true. Other people claim that the, 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 the Soviet partisans couldn't have liberated anybody because they were backed by Stalin, which also isn't true. Interestingly enough, in both cases, it's less the ideology, which, which was indeed in conflict, and more the partisan character that determines things. In both the cases of Polish partisans and Soviet partisans, they did save a fair number of people, and they killed a fair number of people, because that's the nature of being a quasi-state. Finally, and now I'm coming to a close, let's, a let's ask about the individuals who, who saved Jews in the most difficult of conditions. Individuals who were not saving Jews because they were diplomats or because they were high church officials, because they somehow had access to power or, or authority. There are not that many of these people. And th these people, when they saved Jews, generally could only save one or two. By, by miracle, sometimes they would save more than that. These were people, insofar as we have a profile of these people, um, and I've read several thousand Jewish testimonies trying to get a sense of this profile as well. These are generally people who were unusually unaffected by the destruction of the state, or in some cases even dignified by it, people who behave better in conditions of lawless anarchy than they did in, in normal conditions. There are such people, but, but they're a minority. In, in, in some cases, when you look at these individuals carefully, you can see something which looks a little bit like a motivation, like, for example, romantic love or marriage or the desire to have children. But in others, there's really nothing like this at all. In others, there, there are cases where you really couldn't point to anything that looks like a motivation to, 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 to bring about extraordinary action. And I want to stress that it was extraordinary because in the places where there were no institutions, in the places where the state was destroyed, rescuing Jews was punishable by death. In fact, even knowing about the rescue of Jews in your vicinity risked death. So these are extraordinary actions. Um, Bronisława Snider was saved by a woman called Agnieszka Wrubel, and she had this to say about her rescuer. She writes, The role of people such as Agnieszka Wrubel was not so much that they rescued people from death, but in the hearts of people who were chased like animals, in the spirits of Jews who were doomed to die, she aroused a bit of hope 
that not everything good was lost, that there were still a handful of human beings worthy of the name. This is the kind of comments that Jews make. Jews very rarely try to explain motivation as such. Interestingly, rescuers, if anything, are more vague about why they were doing what they did. They're, they're, they're modest to the point where one has, one has the sense that they're all, they must all share some feature of, of character. When they do describe their motivations, they do it in terms that are so generic um, that one begins to feel like there must be something like a banality of good at work here. In other words, these are people whose, who, who, the explanations of whose behavior goes beyond what we can reach with our structures, with our explanations. Now, that could be an optimistic conclusion for us because it might mean that any of us could be a rescuer. But, in fact, I think the realistic way of understanding this is to recognize that the huge majority of us would not be. The huge majority of people are, are affected by the destruction of, of structures. And indeed, this is where I want to conclude. Whichever way we run the argument, whether we run it forwards through time, as I did in the beginning of this talk, to try to account for the destruction, the murder of Jews, or whether we run it the other way, whether we try to, to account for the survival of some Jews, what we find is the importance of structure, the very importance of structure, the great importance of structure. Jews are killed in higher and higher numbers as and when and where states are destroyed. They survive as and when and where states are present. When rescue happens, it usually has some purchase on institutions, institutions that need not be perfect, but institutions. The argument holds in chronology, it holds in causality, I think, and it also holds in outcome. Let me just give you one strike, what I think is a striking example of this. Estonia and Denmark were both small Scandinavian countries, neither with great traditions of, of, of anti-Semitism, Denmark probably a little stronger than Estonia, over the course of the war, 99% of the Jews in Denmark survived. It's a famous story. Some of you probably know it. 99% of the Jews in Estonia were killed. You cannot explain that by reference to pre-war anti-Semitism. There simply isn't a difference, and if there is, it goes the wrong way. Easier to document in Denmark than Estonia. You can only explain it by contrasting the very different experiences of the war, which were at the opposites, the, the extremes. The occupation of Denmark was done in such a way as to preserve the fundamental aspects of Danish sovereignty. The occupation of, of Estonia was double. The Soviets destroyed the state, killed the majority of the leaders, or deported, actually killed, deported most of the leaders, and then Estonia was doubly occupied by Germany. It's that, it's that case, that paradigmatic case of double occupation. That difference of state destruction or not state destruction is what's decisive. And it's an extraordinary difference, right? 99% die in one case, 99% survive in the other case. And there's, some, there's another thing which confirms this reasoning. The Danish Jews who survive, you probably know the famous story of the Danish rescue, which was endorsed by the Germans and allowed by the Germans. The, the Danish Jews who survive are all Danish citizens. The ones who do not have Danish papers, who do not have access to the Danish state, are all killed. They're turned back from the Danish border and killed, every last one of them. Right? So it's not about ethnicity. It's not about society even. It's about, I think, these political structures. Where does that, where does that leave us? And really, I hope this will be 
This will be my, my last word. Statelessness, the destruction of states as a process and as an outcome, was intentional policy. There was nothing natural about it. It was something that the Germans intended to do, and as they did it, they began to further understand the possibilities it created for them in terms of the destruction of Jews and for everything else. It wasn't a return to nature. It was a kind of matrix of opportunities for, 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 for violence. It created the appearance, the simulacrum of, simulacrum, of racial struggle. It meant, Jews were kill, it meant Germans were killing Jews and others in the name of, of race. Um, it, it, it meant also that when the Germans at the end of the war, when the German high leadership on Hitler at the end of the war understood that they were losing and were willing to admit that they were losing, which is something else, Hitler and Goebbels and others could define the mass murder of the Jews as a kind of victory. Even if we lost the racial struggle against the Slavs, even if the Slavs turned out to be a younger, stronger people, as Hitler put it, Nevertheless, says Hitler, we have lanced the boil. We have, we have removed the Jews. We've, we've destroyed the Jews. We've restored the earth. We've restored the planet. But of course, nothing of the kind actually took place. Um, the Germans, those who cooperated with them, changed the earth, but there was, nothing, there was no restoration involved. I opened by, by quoting a Jewish survivor. I want to close by quoting a Jew who did not survive the Hungarian poet Radnuti. He wrote, this is one of his last poems, very last. I, the root, was once the flower. Under these dim tons, my bower, comes the shearing of the thread, death saw wailing overhead. Now, this poem means a couple of things. This poem was found in Radnuti's jacket pocket. He wrote it while he was on a death march. He was a poet, a true poet, a poet to the very end. He wrote poems all the way. His, 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 his last group of poems was in a little booklet where he explained in five or six languages what should be done with this when it was found on his body because he knew what was very likely going to happen to him. He knew that he wasn't going to survive these death marches. And the poems were, in fact, found, as, as you can tell since I'm, since I'm reading from them. The poem means two things. On the one hand, Radnuti was writing this poem at just about the same time when Hitler was saying that this was a victory. Radnuti's death does prove something. It proves the power of ideas, not to restore the earth or the planet, but to change the planet. His death was one of more than five million deaths, which confirms the danger of certain kinds of ideas. But he does and does not go into the earth. He, is, he, he does and does not go into the earth. We don't need to refute Hitler's ideas. They don't really need a refutation. But if we were to point to one, in a way, this poem is a kind of perfect refutation. That we are not just elements of nature as such. That we are not just engaged in a kind of struggle. That we can, as in this poem, define our own relationship to the earth. That we have that sort of capacity, that sort of agency, that we can do this sort of thing even at extreme moments, right? Or that in thinking about death and in contemplating death, even when we know death is certain, we can draw meaning from that fact, from those limits, and create within them. Or, as is also clearly the case in this poem, we can contemplate life after our own deaths, what it will be like to be remembered and read after our own deaths. All of these things which make us 
not animals, not just engaged in struggle, not just reducible to abstractions. We are reducible by other people to abstractions. We are, we can be, we're subject to killing by others who reduce us to abstractions. But even when we are killed, this is in some sense not the end of that story. In other words, the causes of our death, the causes of the murder of the Jews, the causes of the Holocaust, um, whether we get them right or not, they're not coextensive with the losses, with the grief. Even if we understand it, um, there's a limit to what understanding actually means. What brings about death is not the same thing as the significance of death. In other words, any attempt to explain, any explanation, has to acknowledge certain limits, which is what I'm doing now. Thank you. And that, that was an extraordinary lecture on a chilling topic, but with a lot of understanding and explanation and therefore of humanity in it. So I thank you for that. We have um, a bit of time for questions. Um, and I wanted to start with one about the rescues. And this is rather typical of how historians discuss things. Uh, you emphasized structural matters, first and foremost, I mean, as you returned to several times in your lectures, and I think entirely rightly, the presence or the absence of the state, or even, as it were, a, a kind of imaginary state. But I wanted to ask you about ideas and motives in terms of rescues. Um, and you said several times that it's very, very hard to find a common thread with regard to this or an overall explanation. And of course, I'm going to challenge you on that in, in the same way as my students, several of whom are here, will know that I sometimes do in class. If you were to explain this in a broader sense, where would you put the emphasis? Can you see some common threads, some kind of connections in terms of motives and in terms of ideas? that link these very, very different groups of rescuers that you see across Europe, people who were willing to put their own lives on the line in order to rescue, in many cases, people they did not know. Mm -hmm. So this answer is not going to satisfy you, but I'll try to say some things that I didn't say in, in, in the lecture. For one thing, I mean, as you, I'm sure, notice in the lecture, there's a kind of methodological... Um, there's a kind of methodological assumption that I'm working from. In the cases I mentioned, and I could only mention a few, I had to do so much, but in the cases I mentioned, I was talking about zones where the state had been destroyed. So to answer your question best, I think, about personal mo motivation, internal motivation, you almost have to be in Poland or Lithuania mm. or, or, or Latvia or, or, or Ukraine or Belarus because otherwise, just from a social scientific point of view, there's too much in the way. Um, the, 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 French, you know, the, the, the French state, uh, corrupt and, and collaborating as it was, is such a different environment than the Polish lack of a state. And for every educated Pole who was shot, two French bureaucrats were hired over the course of the war. It's a very different institutional in, in environment. And so methodologically, I, I, 
I try to steer away from the cases where there were institutions and towards the cases where the, the position was the most radical. I mean, again, to give you another contrast, Anne, Anne Frank, right? Um, the people who rescued Anne Frank were not killed because there was no policy of killing rescuers in the Netherlands. Most people who rescued in the Netherlands were not punished. In Poland, uh, everyone, everyone who tried to rescue was subject to death. Not, not all of them were killed, most of them were, but everyone was subject to death. And very often the whole family would be killed, sometimes the entire village would be burned down. So it's such a different environment. In trying to answer your question, I, I, I therefore try to go to the, so, so to speak, the blackest places, the, 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 the purest places. And I, essentially, I, I, notice, I notice two things. Um, one, and I didn't talk about this, and I'm glad you asked because I, I, it's important. One, one, one motivation is communism. Okay? Now, and, and communism is interesting because it's not, not, not the communist state, not the Soviet Union, but believing people who took risks as communists in the 1930s in places like Poland, where communism was illegal, where being a communist meant something, did tend to be more likely to have real solidarity with others who were suffering. There's, there is, however, a structural part to this as well. As, um, as my colleagues Jeff Kopstein and Jason Wittenberg have pointed out, in places where communism um, was strong, uh, Jews and Poles, I'll just take the example of Poland, tended to have personal relationships because they were used to hiding with each other already before the war. Mm. Right? So Polish communists might have hidden with the Jewish communists before the war, and then a Jew might have hidden with a Pole during the war. And, that Jew and, the, and, and those were all the same people. Um, and in general, you know, what you find is that in, in pre-war situations where Jews and Poles were politically in the same institutions, they were more likely to help each other. And where there was political polarization, they were less likely to. So, but I, don't, I, I do think the idea of communism did lead to rescue. The, there, are, there are a lot of cases, not so much of communists in the Soviet Union, where it's much more complicated, but of communists in places where communism was, was illegal, I think who really believed in the idea, who, who saw it as, as, as creating an obligation to help other people. Religion. Certainly, 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 you have a lot of people who explain, among the Catholics who rescue, you have a lot of people who explain their motivations in religious terms. But again, there's an analogy with communism, because it's not so much the institution, in fact, the, the, the institution of the church, which, you know, in the case of the Catholic Church in the 20s and 30s in Poland, um, also claimed that Jews are Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks were Jews. And, of course, also at that time, theologically, was blaming Jews for, for the death of Christ. Um, so it wasn't the institution or what people learned in church so much as an eccentric, although I think accurate, reading of the New Testament. People who rescue, Catholics who rescue, very often cite, misquote, but cite the parable of the Good Samaritan, the idea of, of helping, of, of the idea of, 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 of the neighbor being the person who shows mercy. Right? That is not something they would have gotten from church as to how they should treat Jews. Probably not anyway. But it is clearly a religious motivation. But it's an outsidery, marginal religious motivation. And very often you see among the religious people, or among the religious people who saved Jews, it's not just, as I mentioned, the communities who were marginal. It was also individuals, people who were living off in a forest somewhere painting their own icons um, who would save Jews. People, like there was someone called Mikhail Ivanyuk, who, who, who lived alone in the forest and, sa- and rescued helped at least something like 36 Jews. And, the re- and his, his motivation you know, was that he said that the Virgin Mary appeared and told him to do it. 
That was his motivation. Now, that's a religious motivation. It's also heretical because you're not, that's not the sort of thing which is supposed to happen. Um, whether he was Catholic or Orthodox, which we can't tell because he was such a heretic that we can't tell whether he was Catholic or Orthodox. Um, but he did, but the Virgin Mary appeared to him and he did save Jews. Like that, uh, those are, of course, statements of a different kind. But um, that was his motivation. So there was religion, but often re- religion from the outside. And then finally, if there's a sociological pattern, it's of people who themselves were somehow outsiders before the war and whose sense of dignity and self was not so dependent upon what other people thought. Hmm. That's extremely important because the moral calculus is changed by the destruction of institutions. All of a sudden, everything shifts in one way. And that shift is not just the Germans, what they say and what they do in their propaganda. It's the economics of it all, right? Hmm. Um, if you don't steal Jewish property, someone else will. If you're hiding the Jew, that means someone can report you, get you killed, and your children will inherit your property because they're going to get your property. And all these things, that is the people who denounced you are going to get your property. So all these things shift the morality dramatically. So it tends to be people who had some kind of sense of individuality, often what in normal circumstances would have seemed like a perversely strong sense of individuality, obstinacy um, before the war. But that doesn't quite get to, you can never quite get inside but those are, those are the patterns that I see. Thanks, Tim. Go to some more questions. I'll, I'll do uh, two of them, if I may. Um, it's the gentleman sitting at the end over there. We have the microphones, so I'm going to take two in the same area. I will get you upstairs as well. Please, sir. Uh, first off, Professor, thank you very much for that. Um, however, I'm going to also try and challenge you a little bit. Um, in the former Soviet Union, more Jews were shot by the Einsatzgruppen than were murdered at places like Sobibor, Majdanek, Treblinka, or Auschwitz. So with that said, um, how do you reconcile that fact with uh, your conception of most of the killings taking place where the state was completely destroyed? Okay, we have another question on the same side. Yep, gentlemen, two rows. Fine. Thank you very much. Please. A brilliant talk. I'd love and two analyses of Nazi Germany, Italy, and Finland. I understand that while Mussolini was allied to Hitler, he refused to hand over Jews. The threat to and I post, I have a personal interest in this because the threat to the Jews developed Italy when it switched sides. I have a Jewish aunt who had to hide from the Nazis in wartime Italy. I've been in post-war career. She successfully hid. And Finland, yes, another ally, a democracy with fought the Nazis. Yeah, that's a, it wasn't a democracy. actually fought with the Nazis. But I understand they saved all the live Finnish Jews. If you'd corroborate me on this. Do you want to hand those two? Sure, sure. So let me start with the first question. I, uh, this is, in fact... I, the, the, core, the core of my argument in a certain way that what I've been trying to do in, in this project and other ones is to draw attention to the fact that the Holocaust doesn't begin with the methods that look like they're more state organized. When we look at Auschwitz or when we look at, at, at Treblinka or Sobibor, it can look like an example of a lot of state organization. It's not, in fact. In fact, it's very simple compared to fighting a war on the Eastern Front, for example. It's an extremely simple operation, technologically and logistically. But it looks like it might involve a good deal of organization. Most of the the Holocaust begins in the East by shooting, as you say. It's not quite true that more people were shot than were 
than, than, than were gas. It's about the same, light, slightly more were, were, were gas than shot, but it's about the same. And, and I think the shooting is more important because the shooting is how it started. You know, so I would, in that sense, I agree with the, I agree with the, the, the weight of your question. Um, what I didn't say in the talk is that, is that when the Holocaust spreads from the core where it begins, it goes back into Poland, which has already been destroyed, and you have this reassembly of fragments. It also spreads east. It goes as far as the Germans go. In other words, it goes as far as the Germans are able to destroy or pervert Soviet institutions. And I, the, the, the territories that you're talking about are either doubly destroyed places, so the places where the Soviets expanded westward in 1939-1940, eastern Poland, the Baltic states, um, where you have, if, I, if memory isn't betraying me, about 1.3, 1.4 million Jews killed, and the parts of the pre-war Soviet Union, where the Germans also move in and, um, and kill very high percentages, actually a little bit higher, well up in the 90s, of the Jews who are still there. More Jews flee because they have more time, but they using collaborators who are from the pre-war Soviet Union, not nationalists or whatever from the Baltics, they're, they're, and using pre-war Soviet administrators who basically stay on the job, and using pre-war Soviet um, denunciators, by the way, if that's a word, the same people who are denouncing people in the terror are denouncing Jews now. Using all of this, they're able to kill people in the same numbers. But this, this fits my argument, because what I'm concerned, what, what, I, what the Germans do is they, they're trying to destroy the Soviet state. I think what you mean is the Soviet Union as a whole was not destroyed. You're right. But insofar as the Germans, precisely insofar as the Germans are able to destroy the Soviet state, they kill Jews. That, that border you know, is an incredibly important border, right? And that's, that, that's how I think it proves my point. On the Allies, yes, I mean, being a German ally did not mean adopting German policies towards Jews, especially a purely military ally like Finland, which was basically fighting, what, what do they call it, the recovery war. They were trying, they're, they're, they're trying to undo the winter war. They have their own motives. Italy did not take part in the Holocaust until, um, this, is, this is, again, one of these exceptions that proves the rule, until um, Mussolini is, is, is removed from power, Italy tries to switch sides. In general, when German allies try to switch sides... Um, the Jews are at risk because the Germans then come in. So you have the, 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 mo- the vast majority of Italy's Jews survive, but those who are killed are killed in the German-occupied zone after Italy tries to switch sides. And you have, a, you have a similar story, although on a much larger scale and with more Hungarian involvement in Hungary. Um, many Hungarian Jews are killed before uh, the, the, the Germans intervene, but after the Germans intervene, it becomes, it becomes wholesale. And that's precisely because Hungary is trying to switch sides. Questions upstairs? Yes, the young lady over there. Yes, indeed. Um, I sh- oh, that's loud. Okay, I was just wondering, um, in terms of this idea of bureaucracy and state helping to save Jewish lives, why does a country like France hand over the majority of their Jewish population while a country like Denmark saves them? Hmm? Because I'm going to forget, before I take the next question, also upstairs, you could give the microphone to the gentleman sitting on the second row up there. We have a survey going, uh, and I've forgotten to mention it. And these are the good folks over in Ideas who are trying to figure out a little bit more about those who come to attend today. So please do fill in uh, this form. Should have been in your seats. You should have gotten it when you came in. And give it to one of the stewards on your way out, if you could, please. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, have you come across, or could you think of any other place or any other time where, have you, where you have seen this connection Uh, as you have been describing now, between the destruction of the state and mass killing. Could we take one more? Sure. Yep. Another one upstairs? Yes. Uh, Gentlemen at the back. Yeah, please. 
1944, as the Eastern Front collapsed, you saw the rational absurdity of cattle trucks being used to deport Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz where they were desperately needed for the Eastern Front. It seems to me that the, the irrational pursuit of the final solution was at, was at the expense of a rational pursuit of the Eastern Front war. Would you care to comment? Some very good comments. Tim. Okay. First question is about France. Uh, the, the, most of the French Jews survive. French is much closer to Denmark. About 75% of the French Jews survive. And that, in my view, is precisely because the occupation of France, um, although there, there, there are some exceptions here and there, was run more or less as a traditional military occupation where the SS had a limited role. The contrast is with the Netherlands where you have the exact opposite effect. In the Netherlands, there's not a traditional military occupation. Instead, you have the SS running things and the local police subordinate to the SS. And as a result, you have roughly three-quarters of the Dutch Jews being killed. In that, in that sense, the Netherlands is more like Eastern Europe. It's a very special case. In France, most, most of the Jews who are in France survive about three-quarters. And this is, this is where it gets interesting. Do you know what the, the, the largest group of Jews killed in France was during the Second World War? Thank you. Yes, Polish. The largest group of Jews killed in France were not the French Jews. They were the Polish Jews. And the reason why the largest group of, of Jews killed, not because there were more Polish Jews than French Jews, of course, but because the Polish Jews did not have state protection. So the, the, in general, French authorities were very hesitant to strip French citizens of their citizenship. They did some, and then they stopped the process. They were, they, they were, they were much more willing to deport foreigners. And the, over, the overlap of German policy and French policy was that Vichy wanted to deport foreigners, and the Germans wanted to kill Jews. And so the people who were caught in the middle, the, the people in the middle of that Venn diagram were foreign Jews. And the largest group of foreign Jews were the Polish Jews. So the whole Holocaust in France, actually, is, is a kind of extension of the Holocaust in Poland. The main victims of the French Holocaust were actually, were actually Polish Jews, stateless Jews, people whose state had been, had been destroyed. Uh, okay, next question. Oh, th- yes, um, other cases. Look, the whole field of genocide studies, as you know, I, I don't know where you're asking this question from, but the whole field of genocide studies has only a few robust conclusions. And I'm not talking about you know, historians like me who you know, make these qualitative arguments. I'm talking about the social scientific types who look at a whole bunch of cases. Their, one of their main conclusions is that cases of ethnic cleansing, forced deportation, genocide, arise in moments of state collapse and civil war. We know what you might think of as a pretty obvious thing, but it's, it's, it's supported by the data. One of the things that my argument does, if it's true, is that it brings the history of the Holocaust into contact with what everybody who studies other cases of ethnic cleansing and genocide thinks, namely that state breakdown civil war is, is necessary for it. In my argument, of course, state breakdown is not a side effect of something else. It's a deliberate policy. And in my argument as well, there's also a particular hostility towards the Jews as such who need to be removed from the planet that, that, that makes them the special target for murder. But it, it, it fits with, I think, what the social scientists are, are arguing. In other words, there seem to be a whole lot of cases which confirm this. And then um, what was the final question? Somebody help me. Rationality. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're a good person to help me. Uh, so y- yes and no. Y- yes and no. Um, there, the point that I was trying to make, as I'm sure you understood, is that 
the, rash, the, the war is a war on the Eastern Front, above all. Right? The other wars, France, Britain, even Poland, are distractions. They're in the way. They're things that had to be done so that the real war, the war for Lebensraum on the Eastern Front, could be pursued. That's the real war in Hitler's mind and also in terms of German losses, in terms of total losses, um, in terms of where the war was decided. We all know these things. In that war on the Eastern Front, there are two, to use your terms, there are two rationalities the whole time. One rationality is that we can colonize these people and more or less instantly have huge food supplies. We can instantly uh, starve, I didn't go into this in this talk, but we can instantly starve about 30 million Slavs by diverting their food from Russia and Belarus to Germany and to Western Europe. Starving them is a side effect of, of changing this whole you know, Eurasian political economy so that we will have a bounty of food, then, then, we will be, then, we'll, then we'll have enough food, we'll be secure, and also we'll be moving towards this higher standard of living for the whole future. Um, you know, Hitler says, what the, what the Americans took decades to do will accomplish in a matter of years. That's, the, that's, the, that's one rationality. That rationality looks worse and worse with time, but they can't admit it, of course. I mean, Hitler can't ever say the thing which I say, which is that there's a shift from that goal towards the other goal, which is the murder of Jews. Um, the, the murder of Jews is a different rationality. The murder of Jews, it says, in, insofar as, there, as the clash between races doesn't turn out the way it should, that's because the Jews are around. They're, ma- they're, they're, they're interfering. They're making things happen the way they shouldn't happen. And so if you are losing a racial struggle and if you're the master race, then the, the Jewish problem is your problem, and that's the argument for getting rid of the Jews. And that's the argument. It's not just my logic. That's the argument which was made at the time. So within this mental world, which I tried in the first 10 minutes of the talk to create, the, there are two rationalities, and they work together in a certain way so that your shift, you know, what you're describing using the cattle cars, it's not a contradiction um, because the, the Jews are an enemy in a very real sense for, for the people who are planning this. Now, that's the yes. The, the no would be, even at the end, um, the, the, you're right, of course, that those cattle cars could have been put to better use if, if we were in a different mental world. But the, the, the sad truth is that logistically, the Holocaust actually wasn't that demanding. It, even from our point of view, just counting the resources, it didn't take that many human and material resources to carry it out, sadly. So even looking at it from a kind of brute arithmetical point of view, it wasn't that big of a contradiction. There are a few questions over here. Good to see you again. Yes. Please. Hello, uh, Professor Snyder. Could I just ask you to say a few words about uh, Romania? Um, I've read quite a lot about the Holocaust, but I haven't read much about Romania and how that fits into your theory. And could you tell, tell us what your next uh, book will be, please? Mm-hmm. What are the questions over here? Yes, Sandeep in the middle of the Also, welcome to London. Good to see you. Uh, I just have a quick question. Uh, this was an interesting point of double state destruction. Uh, if Soviets were very good at it, then uh, did Germans ever try to learn from Soviets uh, beforehand or once they saw the result of Soviet state destruction? Mm-hmm. We have, if you take a third one, there's one right behind there in the gap. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, just to get it back onto the title, The Origins of the Final Solution, uh, I think a lot... The main problem that really happened during that period was the uh, the fall of secular governments. And I, I don't understand why you've not talked about this subject more. So the fall of what governments? Secular governments and mm. 
the fact that secular governments really need to uh, look over the church and the religious organisations for Europe. And without that, you end up with very horrific wars and situations like this. And uh, also, I think Hitler's goal was increasing his land was about the Third Reich and not uh, directly industry. Thank you. Thank you. We have one challenge. Very eager gentleman over there on that side. I haven't been overlooking you, sir. If you could put your question very briefly and succinctly, I'll try to get him to answer it. Uh, thank you, Professor Schneider. Your perception of history is certainly uh, intriguing. One wonders where, uh, whether, where uh, the, the history will, will, will judge you to be right or not. You have uh, skirted around the facts that uh, Germany was lost, lost of territories in the 1914-1919 war. They were ceded to various countries vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, Prussia, the Alsace-Sar, uh, and other uh, parts which were ceded to Romania and other countries. You have skirted around those, and you said that uh, uh, Germany has had, had uh, claims or wanted to, to, to annex those countries. You also said, which I, which I found is rather... No, you have to be brief. Very so brief. I, I, will, I will be brief. You, you keep on talking. Uh, please excuse me uh, for mentioning this. This uh, term which you use, anti-Semitic, I'm an Arab. I'm an Iraqi. Uh, Semite and Arabs are the same. So why you and other people keep on using the phrase because it antagonizes people and it's, it's a monosyllabic uh, phrase. Okay. I think that the point has been made. Thank you very much. Tim, um, some challenges, some questions? Right. So starting from the beginning, Romania. Um, Romania is a, it's a very important case. It's the most important case after Germany. It's important because um, so many Jews were killed under Romanian authority, something like 250,000, may, maybe a bit more. So, you know, w when you count the Holocaust, it's a very significant difference. If you count the German, if you count the Jews killed by the Germans, it's about 5.4 to 5.7. Add the 300,000 killed by the Romanians, and then you're getting up towards 6 million, which is the canonical, canonical number. Um, the, in, in Romania, you had a distinct policy a distinct, a distinct trajectory towards anti-Semitism. Towards anti you had a distinct idea about land, which had to do with the loss of territory to Hungary and the Soviet Union in 1940, which made, it's a complicated story, but that made Germany the only possible ally, because only German power offered the possibility of getting the land from the Soviet Union back. Um, when Romania was the only country that, that Romania's leader, Antonescu, was the only person with whom Hitler seemed to have consulted seriously about the final solution. Uh, he seemed to have known more about it than other people in advance. It seems like Romania's policy when the Second World War began was, if not coordinated with Germany's, very similar in its, in its, in its overall outline. Um, in terms of the, the argument that I'm making, there's some striking confirmations. Romania kills a lot of Jews, but the very large majority of them are precisely from territories which the Soviet Union had conquered. They're the ones who are vulnerable, the ones who have lost state protection, the ones who have been subject to the Soviets, and the Romanians do what the Germans do when they come back. They say uh, the Jews were the collaborators and the collaborators were the Jews, the Jews were the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks were the Jews. Interestingly, unlike the Germans, they know this is wrong. 
They know it's a conscious policy to protect ethnic Romanians, even ethnic Romanian collaborators. So when the Romanian state comes back, it, unlike the Germans who are only half conscious of what they're doing, they're fully conscious of the manipulation that they're carrying out in, 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 in liberating Romanians, so to speak, from the opprobrium of collaboration. And this is, you, you can see this like hour for hour as it plays out. It's really interesting. When the Romanians come back, um, and this is true in Poland as well, the first thing that people do is they try to beat the actual collaborators. This happens, by the way, in Poland as well, before the Germans come and teach them who you're supposed to kill. People have this funny way of wanting to kill the actual collaborators, right, regardless of their ethnicity. And the Romanian forces would literally say, no, no, you're not, we're not killing the collaborators. We're killing the Jews, the Jews, the collaborators, the collaborators, the Jews. So they, they use the same politics of Judeo-Bolshevism, but they, they seem to be more aware of what they're doing. Another way that Romania confirms a general argument has to do with sovereignty and foreign policy. For a lot of reasons... Um, Annoyance at the at the Germans' demands and the tone of their demands, belief that the Romanians had already sacrificed enough with all of the losses of German troops on of Romanian troops on the Eastern Front, especially at Stalingrad, um, belief that deporting the Jews would help would help the help the uh, German Germans in Romania in places like Saxony in, in places like um, in, in places like Transylvania, the Saxons in Transylvania, it would improve their relative demographic position in parts of Romania. Um, but, but above all, because Romania was beginning to realize that Germans might not be winning the war, in 1942 you have a shift of policy. So that by fall of 1942, the, German, the Romanians are no longer killing the Jews. They don't ship them where the Germans want them to ship them, and they actually stop killing them on their own as well. So that by 1943 and 1944, Antonescu is asking people, you know, what, what happened to the Jews? You know, what, what, what was, you know, so there's a complete change is, is the point. Okay. Um, next question was what? Settler regimes. Oh, right. So the Third Reich, I mean, the, the thir- what the Third Reich means is that history has been totally compressed. Um, the Third Reich means that you don't think of history the way that I would think of history or most of us would think of history, that one thing happens after another and there's a chain of events. The Third Reich is a way of compressing everything. Um, there's no historical causation. Trotsky and, and Paul are the same person. Um, the Third Reich is, is a notion about you know, a kind of non-historical restoration of Germany. I don't understand what you mean by settlers. The notion of settler colonization is extremely important because settler colonization is murderous in a way that administrative colonization is not. Um, what the Germans had in mind, Hitler messed around with his metaphors, but what he had in mind for Eastern Europe was uh, settler colonization, like Australia or North America, where you actually drive out everyone else as opposed to administrative colonization like the British in, in South Asia. That's an important part of, of, the, whole, of the whole story. Um, Germans and Soviets, they learned from each other. I read a lot about this in Bloodlands. Um, it's, they, not much is the short answer. Um, they saw each other, but they didn't know very much about each other, and the Germans misunderstood the Soviets to a large extent. Um, the Germans thought a lot of things about the Soviets that weren't true. The one, there are some places where I think there was some copying um, having to do with agricultural planning, for example. The, the Soviets had a five-year plan. The Germans had a four-year plan. You know, anything the Soviets can do in five years, surely the Germans can do in four, <laughs> if not less. Um, the, the, the Soviets collectivized agriculture. The, the German and they starved people with those collective farms. The Germans kept the collective farms with the intention of starving people using those collective farms. So that wasn't so much copying, but it was, that was an inst- using an instrument which the Soviets had, had created. Um, Anti-anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism was invented. I mean, there was never Semitism, right? So for anti to be anti, the term was invented, and it has a specific historical meaning of meaning opposition to, to Jews. I think everyone knows that. 
Um, the revisionism is a good question. I guess it's really interesting. With, re- with territorial revisionism, I mean, of course you're right that Hitler was concerned about, um, about places like Danzig. He was concerned about Pomerania. He was concerned about South Tyrol. But the interesting thing in Hitler's writings is that he was concerned about them only in domestic politics. He knew that other Germans cared about revisionism, traditional European-style revisionism, where you lose a war, you lose some territory, and then later you want to win a war and get that territory back. Traditional revanchism, traditional revisionism. That was very important in German interwar politics. Everyone from right to left believed in that kind of territorial revisionism. Hitler thought it was balderdash. Hitler thought that, you know, he said expressly in Mein Kampf, if we get back all the territory that we lost in, 1940, in, the, in, in 1918, 1919, that will, be, that will be far from sufficient for us to achieve the Lebensraum that we need. He was not a traditional territorial revisionist. He believed that Germany had to have a massive land empire that stretched well into the Soviet Union. He was annoyed at people who raised these little questions of South Tyrol. He thought that was a distraction. Of course, it would come back into the Reich eventually, but that wasn't what was important. What was important was the huge drive to the east, which was going to transform the world to Germany's in, in, in Germany's favor. The, the, what was what was important was the creation of, of an immense German empire in which hundreds, in which tens of millions of people would be starved, in which the Jews would be eliminated, in which Germany itself would achieve a kind of metaphysical balance between countryside and city, in which it would become a great power, in which the whole world would be globalized in a new way, re-globalized. That was what, that's what this was all about. It wasn't about little bits of territory about revising the First World War. It was about something much grander and much more horrible. Tim, this has been a fantastic fourth lecture. Um, I'm sure we have all enjoyed it very, very much indeed. Um, this is, of course, not a farewell in any m- meaningful sense. It's uh, You will remain, even after you step down this summer, as Philippe Roman chair, very much part of the uh, LSE Ideas family. We will have you back on occasions, as we do with all of the former Philippe Roman chairs. You have treated us to four outstanding lectures during uh, your, your time in London. Um, not just in terms of the significance of the topics that you've chosen and the interpretations that you've given us, but at least for me, and I think for many others I've spoken to, in terms of your willingness to challenge comfortable truths, those that have been established, uh, and those a lot of people, for reasons right or long, have chosen to believe in for a very long time. That's the essence, to me, of what good, good historical scholarship consists of. And when you add to that the degree to which you have been able to speak directly to us, both in terms of what you want to achieve as an historian, but also the great deal of humanity that you put into that in terms of your concern about the people you write about, you've treated us to what has really been an intellectual feast. So on behalf of LSE Ideas, on behalf of the whole school, I want to thank you very, very much. Thank you.